Hey everybody, I'm on vacation, but I'm bringing you one of my favorite episodes ever. Originally ran in August of 2021. So in anticipation of season three of Ted Lasso, which is coming very soon, this is my conversation with the great Brendan Hunt, a.k.a. Coach Beard. So a couple notes. After we recorded this, he was kind enough to send my Chicago Red Stars players a hype speech for the season, which was awesome. And to follow up, on our conversation around Southport Lanes, I did buy and send him a bowling trophy from the closing auction of his former workplace. Uh, if you don't understand any of that, it'll all make sense when you listen to the podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Brendan Hunt, and my dilemma is I'm a Bears fan who shares a child with a Vikings fan, and that child is being raised in Los Angeles. Okay, so I know this one well. My niece and nephew are a constant battleground for sports loyalties in the family. I've thankfully got them both locked in on the Red Stars, proudly rocking their gear to sports day at school. But my sister and I are battling their dad on the MLB front. We are offering up lots of Cubs gear, and we're trying to counteract his Red Sox fandom. And I think it's going to help us that they live in Chicagoland. We can actually take them to Cubs games. Plus, obviously, the ubiquitousness of Northside gear around these parts helps. Uh, so it's going to be tougher for you. You have to navigate parents of different loyalties and living in enemy territory for, for a third team. Uh, but what I will tell you is this, from having lived in L.A., outside of SoFi Stadium, if you look at the rest of L.A. and its surrounding areas, there are probably more fans wearing Bears gear than Rams. Because we travel, and all the Chicago folks who live there proudly rocking the gear all the time. I mean, I think we all know LA fans don't really show up till the postseason out there. They've got, you know, movie premieres and beaches and, you know, attractive people meetings to attend, I presume. Because I remember when I lived there and those Lakers car flags were popping up in the spring as if the season hadn't already been going on for months. So stand strong. I, I believe that the pull of the Bears and their rabid fan base is powerful enough to take out the Rams and the Vikings. But do not let the kids get their hands on one of those Vikings yaller horns. Because if you put that with one of those helmets with the horns, I don't know, man. That could really capture their attention and their imaginations. And that could lead them to a very sad, very dark, very purple place. That's what she said. It's rare to meet someone who doesn't like the show Ted Lasso. If you if you don't know about it, Jason Sudeikis is an American football coach hired to coach a British football team. And it gives you some of the regular fish-out-of-water hijinks that you'd expect, but so much more heart and humor and a real subversion of the sitcom tropes that feels progressive and thoughtful, witty and warm. Uh, you could find people who haven't seen the show yet Absolutely. But someone who has watched Ted Lasso and didn't suddenly feel like their body was made up of sunshine and rainbows, haven't seen it. Haven't met a one. So I was actually surprised when I read a critique of the show in the Washington Post by columnist Ingu Kang. She said plenty of nice things, uh, but she also wrote in part, quote, Ted Lasso is a fantasy of decency, of non-toxic masculinity, of leadership through emotional intelligence. It's kindness porn, a la Schitt's Creek, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Parks and Recreation. Shows with fervid fan bases that cherish, rather than question, those series' credulity-straining, tolerant settings. And she later writes, quote, It is, of course, totally fine that Ted Lasso is a fantasy. Most fictional series, and many nonfiction works for that matter, eschew verisimilitude or complicating realities. But it's also wholly fair to not want what Ted Lasso is selling, which is where I often find myself. Now, she's, of course, allowed to her opinion. And not everyone wants decency in their entertainment. A lot of people prefer their escapes to come with violence or drug lords, you know, the dark underbelly of society. But the part that got me was calling it, quote, a fantasy of decency, non-toxic masculinity, and leadership through emotional intelligence. That's not a fantasy to me. You know, that can be our reality if we want it to be. At the very least, it can be a goal instead of an annoyance. And in my years covering sports, I've found it shocking how many people 
just can't seem to wrap their heads around the idea of going through life without, say, committing domestic violence or getting in a terrible bar fight or sexually assaulting someone. I know that sounds ridiculous, but come to my mentions and see how often it's like you haven't made a mistake or bet you wouldn't like someone digging into your past. You can call me Pollyanna-ish. I've heard it before. You could tell me I live in an ivory tower. Wouldn't be the first time. But I'm kind of done apologizing for having higher expectations for humanity, for myself and others. Absolutely, second chances are important. Absolutely, the traumas and challenges that people grow up with can result in behaviors that later cause shame. Absolutely, I have been incredibly lucky to live where I've lived, to be raised by the people I have, to have had the opportunities I have. But I also make choices over and over again in pursuit of decency. And in the moment, as we live our everyday and we make choices about ourselves and others and how we want to affect the world, can we at least try to refuse accepting that decency has to be a fantasy? Because I'm not perfect, but I'm sure as hell trying to get as close as I can to be a person that I can be proud of, that other people can look up to, that makes other people's lives better, fairer, and more joyful. And if we just let cynics convince us that cruelty, selfishness, toxic masculinity, women be catfighting, and just general shittiness are an inescapable reality, I don't want to live in that world. So if Ted Lasso gets a few more people to react with emotional intelligence and talk things through instead of coming to blows and consider the feelings of others and engage in ways that feel decent and mature and emotionally intelligent, then I'm buying what it's selling every day and twice on Sunday. And I'm guessing that my guest this week agrees. Brendan Hunt, who plays Coach Beard on Ted Lasso, is a co-creator, writer, and actor on the show. He's also known for being in We're the Millers and Horrible Bosses too. Also TV like Key and Peele, Community, Parks and Rec, How I Met Your Mother. He's an alum of the famed Second City and Boom Chicago Improv Comedy Groups, Chicago native, and he is a delight. I had such a great time talking to him, and I know you're going to love listening. That's what she said. I don't know that I've had more jealousy surrounding uh, me pronouncing a guest would be forthcoming on this podcast than perhaps Brendan Hunt, a.k.a. Coach Beard, because the Ted Lasso insanity is real. And we're going to get to all the Ted Lasso goodness. But I want to go way back to you growing up in the Chicago area, uh, going to school downstate in, in the prairie land parts of Illinois that I've had people in California ask me how far away Chicago is from Illinois. So I guess that tells you the people aren't really uh, very well versed in the other parts of the state. Um, let's start with where you grew up and, and what kind of kid were you? Um, yeah, so I sort of grew up all over the North side. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was like two and then my mom tried to take care of me and my sister by herself. Um, which, you know, I hear that, uh, there's songs about how uh, single momming is right. hard. Um, but this was before even those songs came out, didn't have the cachet, <laughs> uh, that it enjoys today. Um, so yeah, just kind of all over the North side and, um, so I was, uh, I was kind of a hyperactive kid, if not clinically, at least, you know, spiritually, um, and kind of already angry from a young age. Like I remember I, I remember a report card from either first or third grade. The reason why I don't know is because it's a school that I know that I went to two different times. <laughs> Always a good time. I'm not sure what yeah. this was, but there was, yeah. I, I remember a postcard, uh, postcard, report card that said 37 and a half absences in like, a quarter or a semester like it was something insane I was my mom didn't know she was going to work and I was willfully at the age of yeah like eight or nine willfully staying home and watching you know Tom and Jerry and Brady Bunch and Green Acres all day wow okay so do you attribute that to probably just the uncertainty and the inconsistency of a life of early divorce and then your mom working a lot um oh yeah for sure sure. And, uh, which, you know, planted the seeds for teen anger, which is what produces great comedians. I've, I've said all along that the reason my comedy career never took off is because I'm far too well adjusted, I'm a very happy person. I didn't have, I didn't have the, the angst to, uh, to build from, um, did you get into comedy young? Um, I like to think a little bit that I got into comedy because of my love of Tom and Jerry and Woody Woodpecker and Bugs Bunny and all those that were running in that gamut on WFLD at the time. Um, those things, you know, I mean, they teach you violence, I guess, but they also teach you timing. Like the timing is, is still to this day, uh, metronome, uh, perfect. Um, I did see a second city show on a school trip in eighth grade and, and that was definitely 
incredibly transformative. Like I was just blown away by what they were doing. Um, Bonnie Hunt was the main person in the cast at that time. Uh, and she in particular was like, this lady's amazing. And it might've been just been paying attention because I'd never met another person named Hunt before. <laughs> um, but that was a big deal. But even by then, because I wasn't just, you know, glued to the TV while I should have been at school. I was also watching, you know, Carson and, uh, and Letterman well into the night as well. And SNL as well. Um, so yeah, comedy was, was definitely cooking from early on. Who do you remember? I, we all have the cast of SNL that maybe we feel the most connected to. And there's other eras and generations that we love. But like, for me, it was the Phil Hartman, Nora Dunn, Victoria Jackson. Like that stretch, I think, was when that sweet spot of being old enough to get more of the jokes, but young enough to have zero plans. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's a bit of a string bet here um, because... You know, I was watching early enough to enjoy, you know, the Ackroyd Belushi era, um, but still a little young to get it. And then Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. came on and, and no one can say that was the best time at first because that was kind of a dark period. Um, but I couldn't take my eyes off Eddie Murphy. But the first cast that like felt like they were sort of my cast was that cast that was only there a year, that Billy Crystal, uh, Christopher Guest, um, you know, Martin Short. Um uh, Rich Hall, yeah. Rick yeah. Hall. I was Rick Hall and Rich Hall confused. Um, one was on SNL, the other one was in that Second City show. I saw a funny hug. Um, so that one, that one really, really just just got the me. Eddie Murphy years um, all become one to me because I just used to rent Best of Eddie Murphy SNL VHS at Blockbuster over and over again when I was way too young, and then I would repeat all of it around the house. Ha! I'm Velvet Jones, like just nonstop. But that was not like as much of a every Saturday. That was just I rented it over and over and over again. Um, okay, so you're into comedy, and did you feel like uh, when you got into high school and 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 later you felt like you could harness that for the energy and the sort of hyperactivity that you referenced? <laughs> um, I don't know that it was ever as conscious as that, but, you know, looking back, you know, I was, I was just very combustible. I just had so much, you know, so much, uh, anger going on about, uh, you know, my, my, my family. Um, and I have a stepdad by then who, um, has since stood the test of time, <laughs> but, you know, you bring a stepdad in, you know, to, uh, to a, you know, teenager's life and it's like, no. <laughs> um, but, um. So I definitely, like I started doing school plays and then we started an improv group at my high oh, school, nice. um, an improv and sketch group, and um, which I ran roughshod over in retrospect. <laughs> really, it was really, I was not sharing the ball in the way that I should have. Um, but I just remember it feeling like an inevitability, like it, the, the energy of it, the release of it. Um, was that was it you know there was never there was never going to be anything else i mean there was a brief time when i wanted to be a baseball statistician <laughs> i remember there was an article in the tempo section you know in, the, yeah. in those early days where like even bill james's name wasn't out there but he was already you know pioneering and the, and the white Sox in the early la Russa era had a statistician and i was like yes that's my future <laughs> um but then you do, you know, you do the king and I one time and all that just yeah. goes out the window. See, it's that's a lot of people. It's that moment where you have to decide between statistician and Shakespearean actor. So it's very common. You're it's very accessible for everyone listening. Now that moment of decision for you. Um, I heard a different podcast. You talked about the aforementioned stepdad was a Packers fan, uh, which initially caused some problems, but then it required your dad to think fast and bring you to the, was it the NFC championship game, the Super Bowl year or some massive game you had never been taken, yeah. but the jealousy of potentially you attaching a bond to the stepdad and the Packers fandom was enough to push your father's uh, hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's my theory in retrospect because it was an uncharacteristic, um, uh, you know, uncharacteristic big move by my dad. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was out of nowhere. And that was the 85 team of who I was, of course, you know, besotted by. Um, and yeah, that January morning, my mom says, wake up, your dad's coming to take you to the game. And it was, it was jaw droppingly shocking. Like what? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> what the hell? Um, 
And uh, yeah, and uh, you know, as you may have heard, that day worked yeah, out pretty good. Yeah, I heard. I, I wasn't old enough to enjoy it, and now I've spent my entire life hearing about how great it is, and then seeing their names on every car dealership and event in town, waiting for someone to come in and give that feeling again, decades and decades later. Okay, so you end up at Illinois State University. You get involved in the Illinois Shakespeare Festival. Um, you pop out and head to Second City almost immediately. Was that like in the first place you you went after college? Um, no, I, uh, I got like bullied into auditioning for comedy sports mm -hmm. and, um, and had a great time there. And, you know, if perhaps if I'd been more discerning, if I'd taken the lay of the land, I would have, I might've known that at IO some really, you know, some really interesting stuff was happening there. And, you know, the Amy Polars of the world were, uh, were starting to connect. Um, but yeah, I, I tended to find path of least resistance and, oh, I'm in comedy sports now. Okay, great. That's what I do. Um, but I did start taking classes at, uh, second city pretty shortly after that. Um, and then was about to start taking classes at IO literally had signed up, um, before, uh, I got the job in Amsterdam yeah. and off. I went. It's pretty wild how you can look back at different little pods at various improv places and say, I wish I'd known. Like when I was at second city in LA, the big things were at UCB, but like, you're already in it. So you're like, Oh, should I go over there to where we're now hearing about Keegan, Michael key and whoever else is like doing various things. Um, but you, you made, you made good on it because you end up, like you said, in Amsterdam at, um, at boom Chicago. And uh, we've had Ike Barinholtz on the pod before talking about that. And there's a ton of Grammy I mean, Jordan Peel and Seth Myers and all sorts of great people out there. You were out there. I, I, I heard you said another pod, you extended your time in Southern Illinois beyond perhaps the four years one traditionally allots for college. It feels like you did the same thing in Amsterdam. You were out there for a, a pretty long stretch compared to a lot of people who go do boom Chicago, right? Yeah, when I got the job, I was like, all right, I'll do it for a year. But that's it. But the end of that year, um, you know, it wasn't just a good job and a, and a great city. And um, and seeing the world for the first time, it was, you know, Amsterdam's good for your soul. You know, Dutch Dutch philosophy of life is good for your soul. And so I was like, all right, one more year. Uh, and Ike and I actually joined at the same time. We were on the oh, same nice. flight and everything. Um, yeah. And so he also stayed for another year. And around that time, most people were staying for two years, which is the move, because like, take a year and i think there's a move for almost any new place like take a year that no matter where you're going if it's a new place that first year is figuring that place the f out you know and then the second year is when like okay all right i got yeah. this <laughs> and, and after two years ike like most sane people you know left i stayed for three more years after that and then the following four years after moving to la and getting nothing going here i just kept going back to amsterdam so i kind of piecemealed two more years after the first five. Yeah, I was looking through the timeline. And I regret nothing. <laughs> I mean, Amsterdam's a decent place. Like you said, it's good for the soul in a variety of ways. I haven't been there yet, but I've heard I've heard the stories about uh about it being a good spot. And and of the incredible reception for specifically Boom Chicago out there and what an incubator it can be. And you look at a lot of uh what came out of there, there's a little bit of hints at what's to come kick this a world cup comedy with balls is something that you were involved in in 2006 also um the unlikely fan same year which was a, a world cup video series for uh msn and so there's these little dabblings into the sports world um did you have a fandom for either soccer or sports in 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 outside of your chicago fandom before you got there or did you learn in amsterdam that there was something to this whole football thing oh entirely entirely amsterdam or, or damn near entirely like uh are you are you old enough to remember like chicago sting commercials only because i just watched the last the dance sting? and they talked in the last dance oh. about how the chicago sting was like a bigger draw than the bulls before jordan yeah yeah we were being outdrawn by indoor yeah. soccer that's my horrible <laughs> nailed it. um i think that was ryan scorp i'm not sure <laughs> uh i i never yeah, it just never it never grabbed me. Um, you know, the '94 World Cup kind of came and went. And I watched a few games, and uh, and it never it never grabbed me. And um, and then yeah, I get this job in Amsterdam, and you can't watch Bears games anymore. You can't watch Bulls games anymore. And Michael Jordan just retired anyway, so I'm you know even more emotionally cratered than than normal. Um, and yeah, people just started saying like, you really you know just just go to some soccer games. Um, and started going to some Ajax games. That's the club team there, and going to some national team games. And then I moved in with eight Dutch guys <laughs> in uh, the summer before Euro 2000, which you know the European Championships. It's the World Cup minus Brazil and Argentina. It's a it's a big 
thing. And they built bleachers in our apartment. <laughs> and it was it was amazing. And, you know, it's not just in my apartment, but also the whole city had been taken over. It's orange everywhere. Um, and, it, you know, started going to games. And just you, you find out that, you know, yeah, soccer has flaws. But wait, all of our other games have flaws, too. We just don't see them anymore because we're, mm-hmm. we're used to them. So I don't really buy too much the whole like, well, soccer's worse because of this or this or that. Like, if you want to pick holes in sports, we can we can do that all day. Um, but soccer is compelling. It is dramatic. It is it's, it's incredibly athletic. Yeah. You know, they're not big bruisers for the most part, but um, they're doing shit that I can't imagine yeah. doing. You know, if, if even if I'd ever started learning, you know before being in my mid twenties. <laughs> so a real quick question about that living with eight Dutch guys. What was the size of this place? Was it a reasonable accommodation for that many dudes? Or is this like what I'm imagining, which is like a mini fraternity house where like trying to just catch a toilet when you need it is tough. Um, somewhere in between. Um, these guys had all gone to college together up North in a town called Groningen. And um, they had a buddy who like was buying properties in Amsterdam and so he had the top three stories of this building the bottom story was a McDonald's where I ate one to two meals every single day in my five years in Amsterdam I've not very that. Yeah. and then there was a high restaurant and then our three stories um he was going to convert it into a hotel I don't know if that ever happened or not but it was a really like haphazard weirdly shaped but very spacious you know, great fun. place to like bring yeah. and it was around the, literally around the corner from my theater like I would, I would roll out of bed at 11.55 and be at rehearsal Perfect. at 11.59. Perfect. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I really quickly want to touch on because I'm obsessed with peanuts um, and I just love it. And the fact that you had a a whole play that you wrote and acted in uh, that was like a dark comedy parody of the peanuts called Absolutely Filthy about Pigpen, who's homeless and trying to cope with a breakup from Sally. And I just and also the fact that I heard that you came up with this play while dancing solo at Burning Man and looking around at the dust around you and thinking it reminded you of Pigpen. Like, first of all, I want to know which drugs were involved in that particular uh, dancing by myself moment. And then just tell me a brief little bit. I, 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 and can I find this play anywhere? I need to see it. Um, you can't find it anywhere yet. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is, I'm not posting it online because uh, I get naked in it, and you know you can't control the lighting. Fair, fair, um, fair. And you and just went swimming. Comedy, comedy <laughs> naked. That's all. Um, and um, uh, also, like, it's not published yet because, like, I still hold out, you know, a small hope that it'll, you know, get to New York in one way or another. And like, I want to be able to keep working on it until then. I don't want to have published it like before I thought of better right. bits. Um, uh, the drugs involved, uh, at the time were, I believe mushrooms Oh, mushrooms for sure. Mushrooms for sure. And, uh, I believe I'd been, I'd been given Molly. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. You were over um, That was on them. Things, also, yes. I was I, I, wildly. Cause like I had this great idea, but then soon I was like overheating and like the sun had come up and I'm wearing this big furry coat. Did yeah, you write it boy, down at it the was, time or did you actually was, remember it? No, I actually remembered it. It was burned in my brain because the other drug was love. There was a girl there, <laughs> uh, a woman who um, I had like fallen for really intensely the year before. Um, and I thought like, you know, it, it was it was, you know, plyo romance, as it's mm-hmm. called. Um, 
but it was like magic and a lightning bolt and all these things. Uh, she failed to mention that she had a fiance. Um, and so now a year later, uh, she's there and like, I'm still sort of pining for her. So yeah, dancing, dancing by myself, um, having some heightened senses, but also, uh, you know, my heart, you know, barely held together. Um, I asked because my husband and I went to our first fish show a couple of years ago with a friend who's been to a hundred something. And he was really like, I'm going to take you. And we're like, we like some of the songs, but he's like, no, I really want you to experience it. And we wrote an entire Christopher guest style mockumentary about festival music while we were high as f- at the fish show. And I kept putting the notes in my phone because I was like, I'm never going to remember this. And the next day we're going through, we're like, there's just a woman who's always breastfeeding in the shot her baby, like her hippie baby, and the baby keeps getting older, but she's still always there breastfeeding, doesn't have any lines. Uh, they're just, we created all these characters, and then we were like, we should get high more often. Like, we're so creative. And then we were like, but we also don't accomplish anything. We just think it's hilarious, then go back and look at the notes and wonder, like, what what the f- did we think that... Anyway, um, I haven't done mushrooms, so maybe I should up my game a well, little. You gotta, you gotta write, you gotta write and that. And then, yeah. It's important. Like, you, the job is not to judge those things at no. the moment. You know, your, your your job is to give yourself the record of what came up and then in sober times, then you can decide. But the act of writing it down is 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 not to be uh, is not to be to be smited. No, it's, um, it's just very me that eventually. during the midst of everyone else just letting loose, I was still taking notes for future projects and making sure everyone in line for the bathroom wasn't cutting, which is apparently something that will cut through any drug that I take. Like no matter what, I'm still going to make sure the rules are being followed. It's uh, probably, well, yeah. it's absolutely true. <laughs> like, I, I, that's the case for me too. I mean, yeah, I'm out there and I'm dancing and, and stuff, but like I separated myself from everyone and was having on my, you know, my own solo thing of thinking of these things, I could have just been, you know, socializing like a, like a normal, well, I guess it's burning, like a normal yeah. weirdo. Um, so you were creating, but, but yeah, you were creating in that moment. I get, reason, like I'm, I had to abandon people and I don't feel, I don't feel great about it in the long run. No, I guess I do in the long run, but in the short term, eh, that guy's a dick. Yeah. People aren't always worth uh, surrounding ourselves with. You got to take breaks from them. I really hope that I get to one day see that absolutely filthy play. It sounds magical um you've been in a ton of stuff that i am a huge fan of i'm a massive community fan parks and rec is so much joy key and peel which you got an emmy nomination for as, as one of the writers on that are all of these projects coming through just very organically through the relationships that you have from second city and boom chicago um or did you have those moments where you're just living in la and going on auditions or submitting writer samples uh both um uh, between like knowing people or, or auditioning, um, you know, Jordan and I were together boom for almost three years. We had a, we had a two man show in fact that we did in Edinburgh. Um, and when boom Chicago came to uh, second city to do a swap, which we did two years in a row. Um, that's when Jordan met Keegan and uh, I did as well. And I mean, Keegan, the first time you see Keegan Michael Keegan oh, on stage, it's like it's incredible. This I, I mentioned he was at yeah. UCB when I was out in LA, and it was like just pff, took takes over. He was in the ETC show at the time, and that cast had a bunch of people who I was, um, you know, already knew were good. You know, Jack McBrayer and uh, Pete Gross, I believe. And you go in, and then like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> More than holding his own with people who I already you know respect and admire. Um, so yeah, I got, I got called in and invited to work on their, that was just their Super Bowl special that I wrote for, not the, not the right. whole show. Um, but you know, they, they also brought me in to be on the regular show a few times and that was nice, but the community and parks and rec, those are straight up auditions. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. you know, the old fashioned way. So not the oldest, not the oldest. Way. well, yeah. I mean, it is Hollywood. Yeah. We've all heard about it. So congrats, I guess, on yeah. being a successful lover. Ooh. You've accomplished great things via the the oldest, the old fashioned way. Uh, so Reno nine one one Parks and Rec community, How I Met Your Mother. Then you end up um, in a couple films with Jason Sudeikis, who you also knew from Boom Chicago, uh, Where the Millers and Horrible Bosses too. All of these things are accomplishments in their own right. But it feels to me, and I heard you mention this on another podcast, that this. Ted Lasso moment for you, this character, the show's popularity, all of it has catapulted you into a very different space. Is that fair to say that the last, I don't know, eight or nine months has suddenly been very different for you? Um, yes and no, because like it's all under the auspices of 
not auspices, but under the umbrella of, of COVID yeah. stuff. So, you know, I, I hear tell <laughs> that if you have a hit show and you uh, go out and about, suddenly all the doors open up and, uh, and the dispensaries roll out a green carpet just for you. <laughs> um, but uh, none of that has, has occurred yet. And, and it's kind of a 24 hour job, you know, when you're, when you're producing it and writing it and, and in it. Um, so, so there's not too much time to like experience much of a, of a life difference, you know, um, having said that, like that 24 hour day job is the greatest. Mm -hmm. It's the most fulfilling thing, um, artistically and in terms of, in terms of rewards and in terms of, you know, it's, it's now, I mean, it's me and Jason and Joe Kelly were the original creators. Um, and then, you know, Bill Lawrence comes along. But in terms of me and Joe and Bill, or excuse me, me and Joe and Jason, those are old friends. These are guys I've known for over 20 years who are now, you know, people I'm seeing every day or getting in touch with every day, at least, to, to get to work. But now the writers are, are friends and the cast are friends and the crew are friends. Like, it's just, it's it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool moment. And then um, we'll see, you know, we'll see how long it lasts or crashes violently to the ground. <laughs> I do love reading all the stories about the true friendships, uh, you know, Juno and Juno and Hannah becoming great friends. And you and obviously Jason Sudeikis have been friends for a long time. It is the dream, right? When you see I, my examples are always like Lonely Island or like Beastie Boys, you know, like people that they can go back and show you the movies or the songs they made in their teens. And then they become grown ass adults and they're still loving the work that they do. It, it's It's really incredible. So I want to take you back to the ad campaign that that you co-wrote with Sudeikis for the Premier League. It was NBC Sports taking on the rights. And and in it, there was this football coach, Ted Lasso, who was you know going to coach Tottenham and all the interesting idiosyncrasies and fish out of water tales of what that would look like. It was very funny at the time. You would have never convinced me it would make for a show. In fact, when I saw the previews for Ted Lasso, I believe I recall saying specifically to my husband, that looks f***ing stupid, which I now regret deeply. But at the time... I just didn't really get what we were doing here. And then I, you know, a couple of people said it's good. I'm like, give it a shot. I already bought Apple TV plus for, you know, the morning show. So might as well. And then boom, like first halfway through the first, I'm so a little skeptical. I'm like, okay. And then halfway through the first, I cannot get the smile off my face. And there is just this warmth that I cannot describe other than when I'm watching the show, making it with uh, Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, which is a crafting show that is entirely meant to only make you feel warmth and joy. There is no other reason for that show to exist. Whereas Ted Lasso has many other facets to it, but incredible. So when you, I know that Jason said he had this character in his mind for years after that. Were you also always thinking about Ted Lasso or was it not until he came back around and said, could we make something of this that it was resurfaced? Or was this a build for that seven years of can we do something? Yeah. So we did the first one, just had the greatest time, you know, and, um, but it was, you know, it was three days and, and we're done and, uh, and, and off we go. Then the next year they want us to do it again. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, sure. And then we find out, you know, that they, They've been watching the original more or as much in the UK as in the States. <laughs> like, oh, really? What? Huh? And then we work with Tim Howard on that. And we find out from Tim Howard that they're watching it in, you know, Premier League locker rooms. I'm like, what? what? Oh, okay. And we just had a real good time doing that second one. And, you know, Jason has talked about, you know, it sort of unlocked a piece of the character, you know, about his sort of curiosity and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, being a better coach, um, albeit in that case to, to little girls. So pretty quickly at that point, we're like, you know, Jason particular is like, this has got to be, this is, there's something else here. What is it? Is it more commercials? Is it a movie? Is it a TV show? Whatever. And, and soon enough, he calls us to, uh, to his place in Brooklyn and the three of us, you know, sort of beat out um, a season over the course of a week. Um, you know, and we put together an actual pilot script, a lot of which is in the pilot you end up seeing. Um, and then, and then nothing. Um, and like Joe and Jason, they're doing pretty great uh, at that point, you know, Jason, you know, everything Jason doing, you know, Joe's been on how I met your mother for years. And then he, you know, show runs Detroiters at comedy central. Um, uh, I'm, I'm over here in LA just uh, doing a commercial when I can. Um, Hey guys, are we doing that to last thing? Oh, you're having another child. Okay. Take I'll wait, wait till that <laughs> child is grown. <laughs> so I think technically in that period, I was thinking about Ted Lasso more than anyone has thought of anything um, <laughs> because it was, you know, it was, it was a real like life preserver that I couldn't reach. Right. 
for a long time. And then, yeah, uh, Jason does this uh, ch- a couple of different charity events in Kansas City, but there's one called Thundergong that I went and did uh, where I performed as my uh, character, uh, Elvis Prestello, the Elvis Presley impersonator who only does Elvis Costello songs. And on the way back, literally at baggage claim, like we've been together all weekend. We're hanging out. There's plenty of time to bring this up. I've met his family. We've gone to barbecue. Uh, been great. Was, um, oh, hey, is that um, the Ted Lasso stuff? Is that uh, is that still online somewhere? Yeah, man. Yeah, it's online somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, on, it's, on, it's online. Oh, good. I'll meet with Bill Lawrence tomorrow, and then, you know, he literally shrugged. What? He doesn't finish the sentence. Bill Lawrence, just like, a guy who's created a whole okay. bunch of extremely successful shows. and Yeah, <laughs> an, an, an absolute titan of television. <laughs> And um, and then things moved along pretty pretty quickly. Uh, a couple months later, you know, the four of us have dinner together, and then um, and then Joe, excuse me, uh, Jason and Bill go and start pitching it. Um, Apple bites, uh, which is the reverse of how it's supposed to go. Those two words, and um, and then like a month after that, we had a writers' room and we were off. So we talk a lot about, or we've heard a lot about Ted Lasso's character, and it's been really interesting to read some of the profiles of Jason Sudeikis of late and how other people had to let him know that Ted Lasso was very much him. At first, he used to joke about how it wasn't, and then he realized that there was very much of the character within himself. What about Coach Beard? Because the development of Lasso changed a fair amount from those funny ads where he was the gruff American idiot to now this evolved and thoughtful and and full of these wonderful platitudes and thoughts. Ted Lasso character, Coach Beard didn't do much in those ads. He was a similar role of telling him what he needed to know and being informative. Uh, but how did you develop that character and how much of it is you? Well, it, you know, it did start with their commercials of like being the you know the soccer translator, um, kind of like Obama's Luther translator, Obama's anger translator yeah. that Keegan plays for Jordan. Yeah. Um, I was Ted's soccer translator, and you know, you alluded to that uh, that unlikely fan thing I did, and uh, and kicked this, you know, when I was sort of dabbling in soccer comedy uh, for a minute there, um, which is not a genre, not really worth dabbling in, frankly. Um, but but it passed the time. Um, but I, it had become my my like, you know, my sort of mission to tell friends of mine who I knew were sports fans but hadn't gotten into soccer, much as I had been, you know, circa 1999. Like that, it's awesome, <laughs> you know. And I would, I would literally translate it for people. You know, I'd really, literally, be like, "Oh yeah, okay, this is Arsenal, this is Thierry Henry, and like they're kind of yeah, Showtime Lakers," um, <laughs> you know, spiritually, not success-wise. Right. Um, so that was, I mean, I'd had literal conversations like that with Jason in years past, and so we just built on on that. So that part of that part of beard is a hundred percent me, um, um, being. Uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, not, not truculent. Um, but, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't talk much. Yeah, fancy word for not talk much <laughs> that, uh, I'm less like, I, I, I overtalk. I tell stories that don't go anywhere. People are left hanging. Uh, then I just ruined. It's happened more than once. Um, but, but it was important that he do talk less because, you know, Ted has to be the one who talks a lot and he's got to just kind of fill in the gaps. But finally, the piece that we do think is the same, but we have not explored much yet on the show, maybe we will, maybe we not, is Beard's got some kind of history. Mm-hmm. He's got some kind of, um, you know, darkness, things he's seen, <laughs> things he's fighting against, things he pretended never happened. Um, Answers he's dated. Yeah, there's a lot to get to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Ted has assisted in pulling him out um, of whatever hole uh, he was in. Perhaps that hole was shaped like a K. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are definitely, there are definitely similarities enough that, you know, there are things to, uh, things to draw from. Taciturn is I think what you were looking for. Boom. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. This is a podcast that loves words. So I never use taciturn because I'm always describing myself as loquacious. I've never touched anything near taciturn, perhaps maybe just right after birth. And, and then very quickly thereafter, I discovered words. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Euphemism. Euphemism. Good one. Okay. 1650s is when it first appeared from Greek euphemismos, which means use of a favorable word in place of an inauspicious one. Superstitious avoidance of words of ill omen during religious ceremonies. And it started out in English as a rhetorical term at first, 
uh, the sort of broader sense of, quote, choosing a less distasteful word or phrase than the one meant didn't come around to 1793. So examples can be a sort of substitution, like marital aid instead of sex toy. Could be a metaphor, like bun in the oven instead of pregnant. Or a total circumlocation, so completely speaking around a word. So, for instance, a mobster saying someone is sleeping with the fishes instead of dead. Or the Real Housewives of New Jersey cast saying Joe and Teresa Giudice went away instead of went to prison. Euphemism. It's a good one. Also, I like way overdo that. Was that a euphemism? Uh, Instead of like phrasing. Uh, Because I'm a child. Because I'm a 12-year-old boy. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is actually a phrase in honor of Ted Lasso, a very British slang phrase that I find delightful. A damp squib. Quite literally, a wet explosive, something that fails on all accounts, as often a wet explosive does. So according to Enemy Online, squib originated in the 1520s, meaning short bit of sarcastic writing or witty scoff. But the origin is unknown, and the same word, but meaning small firework that burns with a hissing noise, is also first appearing in the 1520s. So that might be the original one, making the witty scoff definition sort of imitative. So a funny one-liner landing like a hissing explosion. So I love it even more now, and I intend to incorporate squib in both meanings into my lexicon from here on out. Damp showed up in the late 14th century to suffocate with, you know, a damp, foul air in a mine uh, from the noun damp. But the more common to moisten was first recorded in the 1670s. And I apologize to everyone who hates the word moist. I don't like it either. I really only use it to describe cakes because there's no other good way to describe a good moist cake. I said it again. Sorry. All right. Damp squib in a sentence. After all that buildup, the Olympic debut efforts from the USA women's soccer team and men's hoops team really were a damp squib. Now let's get back to the interview. I heard you talk about Roy Keane being the inspiration for Roy Kent. And one of the things I love about the characters in this and why it doesn't feel like a traditional sitcom is that there is an evolution that is very clear. And I read an interview with Juno talking about Keeley and how much she loved the character in part because the expectation you have for that character as this tardy little groupie is very quickly gone. And she's uh, strong and smart and capable and Um, ambitious. And I feel the same way about the Roy Kent character, that it could become sort of a very static foil for Ted Lasso and the optimism that that is around him. But then we find out he goes to a yoga group with moms and he coaches and, and loves his little niece and all these things. It feels so intentional the way the show subverts things. Is that always intentional? Was it like from the start, we're going to pick all the things that are traditional in sitcoms and turn them on their head? Or is it just in the development of it, your natural sensibilities are to seek out things that aren't stereotypical or simplified or, you know, alpha beta kind of ways of looking at humans? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, it's more we looked at... um, sports movie sort of tropes um and and iconography you know because because you just see so many of them um you know good and bad and and they have they have things in common and this was going to be you know some kind of sports movie like story um but you know i had a uh an improv coach named uh, josie o'reilly in amsterdam um who had this exercise that i had not didn't recall doing in chicago it's called uh uh heighten and explore and um, it, she would, you know, you would say something and she would say, uh, heighten and like, you keep that. I mean, you keep talking about that thing. You literally heighten it and then explore was okay. Now move on to something else. Mm. And so she would like sort of call you out like a conductor. And, and I think that's basically kind of what we did with these basic, you know, sort of sports movie icons, you know, like we take, we take it in, you know, Rebecca is, you know, she's got some DNA as a, uh, as the lady from major mm-hmm. league, but, but we, you know, we heightened on that. And we, and we explored really inward when we explored, because it was like, why is she this way? It can't just be, you know, ha ha ha, uh, you know, cackling, uh, Maleficent. <laughs> um, even though now we know Maleficent's deeper oh, too. Gosh, everybody you. has to um, be like, even people who want to like <laughs> cut up little dogs and make them into a coat have to have some sort of backstory. <laughs> what have we done as a society? <laughs> Some people Anywho, are just evil, Brendan. Um, okay, we need to just be evil. That. 
Um, so yeah, so we, you know, yeah, we there, it is intentional sort of look at these things. Um, but I wouldn't say that we then externally tried to change them or externally tried to uh, put a twist on them. We we looked at all of them from we looked inward on all of them and like and just tried to find organic places to take them as opposed to saying you know it would be a twist. <laughs> um, you know, going from there. Well, and I think that's another reason why I like it so much. And I hadn't thought about it in so many words until I saw a Twitter thread about it a couple months ago, the idea that in sitcoms, people are always fucking up and it's annoying. If you have an elevated sense of, of, of any kind of content, you know, books, movies, television, at some point you're like, okay, we've seen this trope a million times. Just don't like, I didn't love, I liked it, but I didn't love like meet the fuckers. I can't, I don't really enjoy when it's just like the same person up over and over and they don't seem to learn from it and it's constantly like don't oh did it again it's just not my jam right so watching this show and every time there's a setup that you think the person is going to say or do the wrong thing there's another character that swoops in and speaks to them like an actual human being that lives in reality instead of showbiz and sitcom world that is such a difference because it doesn't then fall into maybe to your point at some point you stop heightening and you explore instead. And the heightening eventually doesn't have a payoff anymore if it's disconnected from the way actual people interact with each other. That's got to be intentional, right? That's not sports tropes then. That's more sitcom tropes that you want to skewer. Um, first of all, I think that was a incredibly well-phrased question. Thanks. And um, and I'm the intentionality there was partially based in, you know, we didn't want it to get broad. Like we really want it to be fairly, you know, fairly real because we're coming in with a broad premise. Like it's a ridiculous premise that you know would never happen. So let's let's play it all out as as seriously as possible with as real characters as possible. Not as seriously as possible. Um, and and so anytime that we started to go off in a direction that was like, and you know, and then, um, you know, like because improv can go this way a lot in comedy sports. We called it, and then and then. Um, Aliens eat Elvis, <laughs> you know, like that's the only, that's the only place right. you can go. Elvis, uh, aliens eat Elvis at the White House. Um, and anytime we started to get toward any of those three elements of, of heightening, Jason would be like, no, no. How about they just apologize? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Um, so there was an intention in the room to like keep things realistic, but then a, a very clear, you know, mission uh, inside Jason that was, that was about, um, yeah, just real, real conversation. And yeah, and I think that has proved a richer playing field in the long run. I've seen a lot of shows that you can tell the people at the helm have very progressive ideas about feminine and masculine roles, about social issues that are at the forefront of things. And try as they might, they either become excessively saccharine in their attempt to weave those morals and messages in, or preachy to the point where you become disconnected from the characters and the plot because you're aware of the writing intending to do something that will elicit a response or plat you know, clapping and platitudes for having put that in the script. Somehow the show avoids that despite touching on some, and in second season, no spoilers, there are some real life kind of sports social issue crossovers that are addressed. And it does so in a way that is, and I'm sure you've heard this over and over, surprisingly effective. Like instead of judging the decency and the warmth and, and the joy and the messages, people love that they're in there and that they're communicated in a way that doesn't feel like it kicks you in the head or the balls. I don't know what metaphor I was going for. I think I meant knocks you over the head and then I went with, anyway, to what do you ascribe that ability and that fine line that you've managed to hit? Um, yeah, well, without giving, you know, too much away, it's just that there's, it partially started from, you know, we love soccer and we want to, uh, without being a soccer show, we want to like, you know, communicate our, our love for the game, but it would be disingenuous to not acknowledge that there are some, uh, there are some systemic problems in soccer, you know, as, as in, as, as in the world, um, so what you see in the show um, happen ends up being a very like um, analogized version of a really a, a confluence of stuff that's not just soccer, but also, you know, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of Kaepernick in there. Um, but uh, what the Clippers did right. uh, when when Donald Sterling's, um, you know, real self kind of got broadcast out there. But there's some. 
yeah, it's so hard to say without getting into spoilers. <laughs> but basically, you know, some some players. There's always been like in some countries more than others, uh, and still today, there's racial abuse getting shouted at players um, from so-called fans. Um, and it only in the last five years or so have have teams started to actively, while on the pitch, take action against it. I mean, even I think just last week, the the German Olympic soccer team had a had a walk off the pitch, right. um, you know, because the power to be are not doing enough and they need to do more. Um, anyway, so that we because it's a comedy show and because we don't want to um, we don't want to get too big for our britches, essentially, um, um, or speak where we where we don't know enough. We we don't delve into a well, no, it's a real thing that happened, but we don't quite get into a fully real uh, thing or fully hot button issue. Um, so it's a bit it's a bit allegorical. Um, but the feedback we're getting is that yeah, it's been pretty been pretty effective, and and yeah, I'm glad we're not uh, I'm glad we're not kicking you in the balls, <laughs> Sarah. That would be that would be yeah. inappropriate and difficult to do because I don't have balls. But a show, like Whoa. you said, is based on premises that would never happen. So let's keep, you know, playing the game. I didn't just yes and you on my balls. I apologize. I sort of said yes. And my balls are enormous. So missing them is actually tough. Um, Let the record show. Sarah started the balls. <laughs> I did. I did. Look at the There's tape. no HR on this podcast, but I would always be the one that gets in trouble. Um, there's some lines in the script that I imagine you read it occasionally. And without the incredible acting of the people on the show, which is another aspect of this that I, I could go on forever about just how perfect the lines have to be hit for them to be enjoyable and for you not to think about the writing. But one's like, you know, you're beating yourself up is something is like Woody Allen playing a violin. I don't want to hear it. Or, you know, something about riding a horse. And if you're, you're doing it wrong, I don't know. There's a bunch of them that are like these very colloquial, fun things. But if I were reading a script, I might think that's over the top, right? And instead it hits. Are there moments when you guys are writing where you're like, we've gone too far. Like this one is not going to work when it actually comes out of someone's mouth. Well, that's why you do alts as they're, as they're called industry term <laughs> alts, alternative lines. Um, because yeah, there's, there's a bunch on the cutting room floor that is like, Nope, Nope. That was, that was just, just too many, but they're fun. They're fun to write. And we have a writer's room full of funny people and, uh, who are who are more than joke writers, and we really don't focus on joke writing. But when we get to like, we need a Tedism here, then it's a fun whip round of of, of spontaneous joke writing. Yeah. Everyone trying to speak in Ted's voice, and you know, Jason of course has the highest batting average of any any of us in doing that. Um, but I think you know because there were so many of those Tedisms that you can't quite picture how it's going to go yet in that first pilot. I think that might be why you know a few of the big streamers were like, "This is broad. <laughs> this is this guy talks crazy." <laughs> yeah. um, and uh and uh, well all right well you they lacked vision and here, here we, we are, are. apple congratulations right apple a uh, couple more quick ones for you about the show and the creativity behind it i've heard that there is a three season arc that that was always the plan this makes me very sad um the last time i remember being like where there was plenty of show left and I was so distraught was when I got to Fleabag late and I was like three episodes in and I was like, wow, how many seasons of this are there? I'm so excited. I've only watched three episodes and I Google and it's like Fleabag done after two seasons. And I was like, what? I'm so sad. I want to watch this for the rest of my life. And that's how I was feeling watching like the first couple episodes of season two. Like instead of just the joy that season one brought me, there was also a deep, dark anxiety that this would one day end. And then where would I go for this feeling of joy other than of course making it? uh can we can we work around this arc like does it have to be three i don't know um i don't know we'll we'll we'll, we'll see you know we start writing season three in uh about a month um and that'll be the start of uh of conversations about that we've definitely always seen it as a three season arc we definitely know where folks are supposed to go but we did not ever foresee the degree to which people love the show so and um <laughs> It's possible that the the good old I don't know it, it people people who uh who have a lot invested in this show um doing well might yeah. uh wish to challenge our resolve here. I don't know if they will or not um because certainly the fleabag model it's a hell of a model. I mean that show is going to live forever. Yeah. Um, Ye old purse strings. You know, we, It'll be the one time I'm one time I'm rooting for the 
purse strings to be the deciding factor in how something goes. Yeah. Um, I just didn't know the tells affect Jason much. But right. We'll, right. We'll I mean, you did say we did. We we have to discover more about Coach Beard. So you know, there's always the spinoff. <laughs> when in doubt, there's always a spinoff. I want to ask you quickly about Southport Lanes and how you were. What was the name you called the oh. job? Pinboy? Uh, Pinboy. Oh, yeah. Pinboy. I've never heard that yeah. until you posted it. But Southport Lanes is this bowling alley bar place in Chicago that's literally lasted through a previous plague and prohibition and all of these things and finally was brought to its knees by 2020. And I feel like you and Jason Sudeikis should buy it. What are we doing here? Oh boy. Um, uh, maybe Jason should, but they, it's already too late, right? They sold out everything. Like they didn't, it felt, you know, sometimes over, the place over. is going under and they'll put up a press thing that's like, like, well, looks like we're going to have <laughs> to fold. Somebody better help. Otherwise it's over. These press releases made it sound like it was, it was freaking over, but it was, I mean, it was a great, it was a great job. Yeah. So for people who've never been to Southport lanes it is a four lane, bowling alley that is um the lanes are done are handled manually by pin setters which in my day were always high school kids <laughs> um and we'd have two lanes each um me and another guy and it was always you know never anyone who i was particularly friends with but we'd meet up and uh and it felt like you know blue collar work it was incredibly dangerous especially on league night when you had some you know six three 250 pound just cannon arms because there was no there was nothing to stop the pins from going up to where you were standing and they would just oh, helicopter right to your chin the walls. And- <laughs> yeah like i could i they would get close enough that i could hear them whip around me and then end up three lanes over to where my partner was standing just land at his feet and we'd look at each other like that was close <laughs> and when we get back into it um but i absolutely loved working there and i loved that job in retrospect um and uh yeah there the one night frank Matthew from wls came in and did like a human yeah, i'm gonna thing. try to find that for you i know you mentioned that i think i told you that i was able to find old footage for my husband and i's first date at wrigley when we were caught on camera so i'm oh, i'm yeah, gonna yeah. go looking for it and i'm gonna see if there's a you know spare bowling pin or beer bottle i can get for you because according to the internet it does say the auction is underway so it has been cleared out. I guess you and Sudeikis can't save it. Called, uh, and that's partially a nod. The pin part is a is a nod to uh, to those. What's times. it called? Pin Raven. No way. Brendan meets Raven, and uh, and Pin Raven sounded like a word that probably didn't exist. Oh. Um, one one quick thing on this Frank Matthew though, it had the greatest tag ever because my partner that night was some, um, you know metalhead who didn't want to be on camera uh-huh. for, for reasons that I found suspicious. <laughs> so I'm the only pin boy in the whole report. And at the end, he's standing outside Southport lanes and says in his Frank Matthew way, because it's Southport lanes, they don't call it Brunswick. They call it Brendan. <laughs> I'm Frank Matthew. Oh, we got to find that. That's classic. That's <laughs> classic. Um, Really quickly, you're working on a play right now. Is this simultaneous to getting ready and geared up for season three? Um, not exactly. I had a play that was supposed to open between the two seasons. Um, it's called The Art Couple. It was supposed to open on the Kirk Douglas last year. It's supposed to open March 18th. <laughs> How'd that March go? 12th, that all changed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'll never forget the rehearsal where we found out that Tom Hanks had it mm-hmm. and that uh, a NBA game had stopped. And that's weird. We're not showing up tomorrow, are we? Like the sets were up. It was, you know, the biggest, um, biggest theater any of my, you know, plays have probably been performed in. It may yet come back, but, um, but, uh, and it, but that, that's my, like, that's my big, uh, you know, my big uh, COVID uh, asterisk. Yeah. Uh, so really hope comes back around. I'd like to think that you have only increased your ability to get a theater of that size and scope based on the last months of, or so. So maybe it will be even bigger and better when it, when it comes back. Uh, there's a maybe. very okay. Ted Lasso spin on all of it, right? Uh, something that is delayed is not denied, I believe is the saying. So uh, maybe there's nice. time. Uh, you have to do the one thing everybody does and nobody expects. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. <laughs> 
Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's 10 questions that everybody answers. Number one, your current careers are canceled. What job do you do instead? Oh boy, I, 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 uh, tour guide. Oh, that would be amazing. Like a like a duck boat. That would be awesome. Chicago <laughs> architecture tour right down the river. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I was at a Ajax game where um, I wasn't that close to it, but from where I was standing, I could see that the away fans had uh, broken a barrier and were stampeding oh. into like seats. And at that point, you start start looking around like, oh, this is what we've always read about mm. happening. It starts yeah. like this. It turned out fine. Oh, that's terrifying. Uh, number three, you can be the best in the world at any one thing for one day. What is it? Uh, bowling. <laughs> I'm not that good a bowler for some reason. Bowling every so long, and it bugs me. You spend a lot of time on the wrong end of the lane. Can't blame yourself, right? Number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, sports do you wish was your best friend? Uh, Thierry Henry. Ooh. You know, he's, he's classy. He's urbane. Uh, he's amusing. Has great stories, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, I met him uh, before this uh, all, whole thing, and I was hammered. So I think I could do you better. Can do better. Okay. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Um uh people who uh laugh at their own jokes when it wasn't a joke you know like oh my god i went down to mcdonald's today <laughs> stop it stop it why are you doing that uh number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been um my uh my sister walked in on me when i was about to start masturbating oh, no. um and i i heard i heard her hand on the door I successfully got my pants back on in time and like it was like this, but I had not gotten the magazine away. So, oh, so no. the magazine, you know, I'm lying there under my refrigerator Perry poster, my black and blues brothers poster. She giggled and uh closed the door. Now she not to be judgmental because to each their own, but maybe it's best there was a magazine and she didn't think it was perhaps refrigerator Perry that was the focus of your efforts or Tom, Thayer. <laughs> or Tom, Thayer. Tom Thayer I mean was... Tom good looking bald guy yep. I don't know like I don't want to make any judgments on what gets people going I've told this story before but my dad and I went out of state for a junior Olympics uh event when I was in high school we went to the movie theater and there were two movies and we just picked the one that looked like it was like fun and for younger people since I was like 15 and it was American Pie so just me and my dad sitting in the theater to an opening scene of a guy jerking off in a sock. So <laughs> memories. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, my discipline. Hmm. In terms of all things or specific things? In terms of all things. Like the main one now is, is food. Like I, I don't have a particularly cultured palate and I'm not afraid of fast food particularly, but I, far too often i'm like i gotta stop having fries no matter how good they are i gotta stop so having fri oh look fries! <laughs> are you an all or nothing person or a moderation um i'm far more all or nothing than moderation. that's one of the keys there's this this woman i had on my podcast her original book that everyone kind of got into is the happiness project but she also writes books about habits and one of the things she does is helps you identify like What's your pattern? Because if you keep trying to apply something that works for someone else, but your way of doing things is not that, it's never going to work for you. So like if you try to do moderation and you can't, you're better off just saying, I never get fries, then you have to figure out your approach. Like never having fries is a bad approach though to life. So maybe you just, maybe it's like once a month I get fries. Both, both, both you know, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> Very true. Um, Number eight, any musician or band, alive or dead, can play your next party. Who is it? Prince. Oh, did you get to see him when he was alive? Yes, a couple times. Once at Staples and once in that crazy long uh, forum uh, run that yeah, he had. Yeah, that's awesome. So good. So yeah. electric. I got to see him at City Winery with only 400 of us when he played a secret show after George Lucas's wedding. And they just said it. My husband saw a local news anchor post on Facebook. The tickets were about to go on sale. It was a random pop-up city winery. He was two hours late. 
We stood outside for two hours and then he crushed with like a 22 piece brass band on tiny little city winery stage. It was, it was epic. Um, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? <laughs> um, never, uh, properly, um, auditioning for SNL, not SNL, second city first, mm. never probably auditioning for, uh, for second city and going on that track, which, you know, no guarantee I would have gotten very far on that track, but, um, um, I at least would know too late now. And, uh, not, uh, yeah, I don't think you can be in your forties and audition for, for second city. It's a, that's a young man's game over there. <laughs> um, and you know, it turns out it's worked out okay. Yeah. So I regret it less than I used to, but, um, it's a, it's a big, it's a big sliding doors moment is after Amsterdam, maybe I shouldn't have moved straight to LA where, you know, like I crashed a car the first week cause I hadn't driven in five years. <laughs> um, uh, maybe I should have moved back to Chicago and, uh, and been a little more patient. Yeah. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, funny, uh, empathetic mm -hmm. or caring caring but empathetic mm -hmm. uh funny caring and um 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 you can find a fancier word for it you with your love of words but um a uh, good smelling good smelling um olfactorally pleasant uh <laughs> there's gotta be your game individual <laughs> words that was your That's true. I did say it was just one, but you then challenged me. Uh, I, there's got to be a big word for good. Oh, odoriferous. Oh, odoriferous. That's what we'll, that's what we'll go with. And it's fun to say. Yeah. Um, okay. Bonus question. Who should I have in this podcast? It doesn't matter what job or industry, just someone you think I would find interesting. Um, Andrew Moscos, the owner of Chicago. Ooh, that would be a really good one. I bet he's got stories. Yeah. For days. Uh, thanks for coming on. This was extremely fun, and you are a delight. Uh, you are a delight, <laughs> Sarah. I mean, I, I've been a fan of you for a while, and I hear you in the car. Oh, and uh, nice. to be asked on here is, uh, was thrilling. Thank you. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is where I rant about something, rave about something, tell you what to read, watch, listen to. I think it's pretty clear you should watch Ted Lasso. I mean, how much more do I got to say, people? How much more do I got to say? Brendan Hunt is a delight. The show is a delight. I want us all to embrace decency and not think it's a fantasy. I want us all to try our best to be good people and not let cynicism tell us that it's okay to just sink into the shit. Is that really so much to ask people? Watch the show. It's amazing. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it. Five stars, please. Give a review and thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.